Welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien and I'm a health psychologist in training. I'm the founder of Head First, so if you have any professional inquiries, you can contact me through my website, headfirst.ie, or through my Instagram, which is headfirstzero. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So today I am delighted to have Dr. Mike Banna, better known as Dr. Mike the Second on Instagram. Um, Mike, I'm delighted to have you on. Um, I subscribe to your weekly newsletter. I love your content. I think as a medical professional, as a doctor, like the insight that you have and the interest that you have in all the different areas is fantastic. Um, now I feel like I know you. <laughs> I probably don't know you that well, but I feel like I know you. Um, but for the people who maybe don't um, follow your page or, or interact with you um, online, can you maybe introduce yourself and, and your background? Sure. And thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and for such kind words. Um, my name is Mike. I am a GP. I work full time for the NHS um, as a GP and a GP trainer. And I also help to run the, the GP training program locally. So helping to train people up to be GPs from junior doctor level. Um, and I guess I just developed this sort of side interest in lifestyle change and behavior change, all that kind of stuff, which basically stemmed from my own background in, you know, having grown up with a very different lifestyle to that that I have now in terms of uh, physical activity and nutrition um, and changing that. It, 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 over the course of, of several years to becoming more physically active and more sort of focused on my health behaviors I guess um, so I developed a bit of that I'm also um, a mental health lead at my practice as well um, I sort of happened by default I, I did a lot of psychiatry in my GP training just because it's what I was allocated always had an interest in mental health but really really enjoyed um, my psychiatry attachments and because I'd had a bit of experience I was sort of offered the chance to delve into it a little bit more as a GP which which I took and really really just I just enjoy talking about mental health understanding mental health or trying to understand mental health um, and trying to kind of advocate for you know reduction of mental health stigma and all the the usual uh, stuff I guess is that everything <laughs> that's a long enough list I think it's only uh, so long someone could talk about themselves and <laughs> um, yeah it's interesting because when I see like what you speak about online it's it's very evident that we have similar interests in the same areas and you're coming at it from you know you obviously have personal interest in it um you have the medical side of things and, and medical training to go with that and I know that's some stuff that we're gonna kind of explore maybe later on was the, the behavior change stuff, right? Because I obviously speak a lot about behavior change alongside mental health. Was that like a, a very deliberate thing for you or is that something that you gained an interest in over time? But like, where did that kind of special interest come from? Well, basically I, um, so I grew up very overweight, um, very inactive, was never any good at any sports at school. Um, and so just rejected all forms of physical activity um never really had any particular interest in my own health I think I just like a lot of people just relied on the fact that I was young and therefore um by default was you know healthy to a degree that I didn't really feel I had to worry about very much um and as I kind of was growing up and becoming more um like spending more time at a desk like when I started to become a GP um, rather than running around a hospital or, or going to university in London where I was walking everywhere, um, I started to notice that I was gaining more and more weight. Um, and it, it just kind of got to a point where, you know, behaviour change had always been on my radar. I'd always wanted to lose weight. I'd always gone on diets for like two or three weeks and then got bored of it and stopped. Um, and it was always something I think that I had in the back of my mind. And I thought one day... I'm going to sort my life out. Um, and I think that I always just had this idea that one day everything would just like fall into place and I would, you know, lose weight and all of that kind of stuff. And weight loss was my, in, it was, was a very like intentional thing for me. Um, I know it's not so, um, 
like it's I wouldn't say it's frowned upon, but we don't often talk about weight loss as a goal quite as much when we're talking about in this, you know, in, in the circles that you and I kind of run in at the moment. It's almost a bit like I feel a slightly embarrassed to talk about weight loss as a goal, but weight loss is very much my goal at that time. <clears throat> and um, I kind of just got to this point where I thought this is never going to happen if I don't do something like this isn't going to happen by default. This is only moving in one direction and it's the wrong direction. So I need to make changes. Like my life actually needs to be different in order for me to, to change this. So I kind of made this really weird. Like, have you read Atomic Habits? No. Okay. So Atomic Habits is basically his book about forming little habits to make big changes over time. Um, and I kind of feel a little bit like I missed my calling because essentially I had never read Atomic Habits and only read it recently. And I was like, I basically wrote this book myself five years ago, but didn't actually write it because I did everything that was in this book. I kind of just decided what I wanted, like my lifestyle to look like in five years time. And it wasn't so much that like, you know, I want to be skinny or I want to be a specific size as such, but it was more like, I want to be a person who exercises intentionally and regularly. I wanna be one of those people who has that as part of their routine. I wanna be somebody who takes care of what they eat um, and who takes care of themselves. And that was kind of my overall overarching goal. Um, and it so, was- So with, with that, like that was obviously at the beginning or that was the kind of intention, let's say at the start of that five year period. Um, what do you think has changed for you over that time? Because, like, again, this, the things, the, the circles that we run in are often, like, polar opposites to that. And, and like you said, there's a lot of opposition for certain approaches, like specifically intentional weight loss and things like that. In terms of, in terms of your experience from, you know, that period to now, what do you think has changed for you in terms of your kind of, um, I guess, your outlook on what your goals were back then versus now? So I think like my understanding of nutrition has changed quite a lot. And that's been that's been the biggest sort of thing that I learned was that I didn't know anything about it. So I went through a lot of phases of doing things nutritionally that I look back on and think, oh, my God, I can't believe that I that I did that. I can't believe that I thought that. Um, and I think that one of the biggest lessons for me was that when you do something and it works in inverted commas, you then become this like major advocate for it being the best thing since sliced bread and I've seen that in colleagues I've seen it in other health professionals and you know we often see people giving out kind of health and nutrition advice that we think oh my god people don't need to do that but having had this kind of lived experience of, of you know doing paleo for example and realizing that I lost more weight doing paleo than I did by doing simple calorie counting and therefore making this very specific conclusion that paleo is healthier than um, anything else and you'll lose weight better with it. And then even like propagating that view to other people. I think that that was probably one of the single most empowering processes that I've experienced because what that enabled me to do is realize how that it's totally possible for, and not to toot my own horn, but a very well-educated, reasonably intelligent person who should know about health and nutrition to be completely hoodwinked by their own experience and to therefore be totally unscientific in their approach when discussing things with other people. And actually realizing that I'm at risk of that was huge realizing that I'm able to make that mistake was huge because then I can suddenly become more open-minded, less married to my ideas, accepting of the fact that I am capable of being wrong, which then I think has helped me to be more flexible in my approach with patients, uh, more understanding of people's different circumstances, which I think is another issue that we sort of have a lot in health and fitness is, oh, well, why don't, why don't you just do this? You know, that, those sorts of approaches that we often get with yeah. um with people so like I think that you know my approaches have changed so much over the years and I don't regret any of them as such I recognize that some of them were potentially harmful if they had been perpetuated for long enough but I was also lucky enough that like to be surrounded by some pretty decent people who 
you know, although I veered off track from time to time into into dangerous territory, I don't think it really, I don't feel like it did me any long-term damage. Um, you might be better placed <laughs> to make that decision. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you say that because um, when I see what you speak about in social media and what you talk about in your newsletters and everything, you're definitely one of the one of the people who I can admire, I guess, for, for want of a better word, for having such a nuanced view. Like whenever even we speak online about a given topic, even though I feel like I would be quite flexible in my approach, I feel like you're always able to offer another level of, of no, it could be this or it could be that or like an, another kind of perspective on it. So it's so interesting to see the learning process from you know, you doing one thing and being like, oh, this thing works or this is the thing to developing, I guess, through doing all of that and recognizing it in yourself that those things change. So it is interesting because when you look at the evidence for what works in the long term and how people are successful, it's almost never the actual approach. Mm -hmm. It's almost never the specific um, you know, dietary advice that they follow or, you know, high fat, low carb, that type of thing, paleo versus calorie counting. It's almost always the psychological side of things. And it sounds like you have this, again, maybe nuanced gray area approach that allows you to be more flexible with that. One of the things I wanted to ask you in terms of being more flexible was around calorie counting. Mm -hmm because I know you spoke about that recently and it was an area of that, look, it comes up a lot in my clinic. It yeah. comes up a lot with the people that I interact with online. And um, you said that maybe putting it out there was uh, going to make you stick to it or you know, not stick to it anymore, I guess. Yeah. I was wondering what your thoughts are around that. And just for people who, who maybe don't understand your kind of story, you tracked for a long, long period of time and recently kind of attempted to or tried to pack it in or, or you know, give it a rest for a while how is that going and what brought about that change yeah so like I, I tracked calories for a really long time and I kind of I got myself into this position where I thought look I can either um be really careful with the amount uh, with uh, the type of food that I eat so that I'm not likely to overeat so I can eat you know minimally processed whole foods and then I'm pretty unlikely to overeat because they're all kind of satiating to that degree and all that kind of stuff I don't want to live like that. I want to eat as much ice cream as I possibly can while maintaining the kind of, you know, the the, the sort of health slash um, body shape differences that I've made over time. And there is no denying the fact I, I don't want to, I don't want to put on a significant amount of weight. I'm quite happy to put on a couple of kilos here and there, but I feel more comfortable both physically and mentally um, at the, you know, at, the kind of my I you know I struggle to know the term to describe it but at this at a certain size um than I did when I was another size and I know how I feel when I put on a few kilos I know that I feel more sluggish when I exercise I know that I feel um you know perhaps a bit less uh confident in in terms of my clothes and stuff like that and I'm sorry I don't want to be buying new clothes all the time I'd quite like to just maintain a situation so like you know, again, I sort of feel like I'm defending myself a little bit when I say that, but that's just the way that it is. That's the way yeah. that I feel about it. And I feel I should be honest about that. So I have always kind of, or not always, but it, since I sort of discovered it, I've been a big fan of flexible dieting um, and kind of, you know, tracking calories to make sure that I can fit in things that I love without going into an energy surplus. So I kind of did that for a long period of time. And then somebody talked to me about, um, in fact, it was Alan Flanagan and I sort of had a big chat about intuitive eating. And we did a bit of an intuitive eating experiment a couple of years ago. It didn't go so well because I didn't really, I didn't really commit to it. I didn't really engage with it. I probably wasn't in the right sort of place to be doing it at that time. And so I just put on quite, a, quite an amount of weight and then decided I wanted to go back to, to tracking calories again. Um, and then sort of it came to kind of this year and I thought, you know what, it, I, I don't actually want to be tracking calories for the rest of my life. This isn't what I see being realistic for the rest of my life. I need to I need to have some sort of exit strategy. Um, I need to start thinking about, you know, because I think that also you can manipulate healthy ish behaviors to become slightly unhealthy. And what I was noticing tendencies to do was stuff like 
you know, saving up calories so that I could just eat loads of ice cream all the time. And actually that's not, that's not healthy longevity based kind of nutrition, is it? And I was like, I want, I want to eat better. I want to, you know, and and I don't want to be hungry all day so that I can have 800 calories worth of ice cream at the end of the day. Like that's not really how I want to live. And it's definitely not how I want to live long-term. So I just decided that, well, again, in discussion with my closest advisors, um, that I was just going to stop doing it and see what happened. And actually what I started doing, and again, I don't know whether this is, you know, the best way of doing it, but it's the way I'm doing it for now. And we'll see how it goes, is I decided I'd actually track my scale weight rather than tracking calories so that then I'm just going to have an idea before I, because I know that I'm not, I'm, I'm not very in tune with, with small amounts of weight gain before I know it, I can easily put on sort of five or six kilos, which is something that I don't want to do. So I kind of figured if I continue to track my scale weight, then at least I'm, at least, you know, I, I'm then much more comfortable with not tracking calories because I know that I'm not risking the level of weight gain that I'm not going to be comfortable with but I'm more than happy to gain some weight and we'll see how it goes. And actually I like it. It's cool. Um, I tell you what I am noticing, which is really interesting. I'm noticing that I've become much more in tune with how I feel when I eat differently. So I've noticed that I'm much more in tune with the fact that when I do overeat on processed foods, I don't feel great actually. And it's, it's making me kind of reflect on that and and prefer to favor i'm trying to eat to fuel my exercise to fuel you know my satiety and all of those sorts of things and i've sort of instituted a few little rules here and there in terms of the amount of less satiating food that i might eat and that (laughs) might change too but that's where we are at the moment anyway. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting you say that because that's an experience that's reflective in my own practice. Mm-hmm. The way I guess I would like to work with people and the way I want to leave people at the end of our work is always something sustainable. And what mm-hmm. like I would never say that I'm against any specific approach. Obviously, the extreme ones that will actively promote like a really, you know, bad health outcome for somebody. But for most things, there is a nuance there of this might be helpful for you and this isn't. When I want to work with when I work with people, I want people to get to the place where this is sustainable for life. This is the way you live now, and it sounds like that is where you want to be. You want to be in a place where yeah. you can kind of do this long term. Um, it's so interesting that you say changes in how you actually feel yourself because this happens all the time. When, for example, people stop tracking their uh, run for like time or heart rate and they just go for a run, they start like noticing different things and, you know, exploring, I I guess, how that feels in their body physically, but also how they feel about it. Similar with food. So stopping tracking for some people can, I guess, give them the opportunity to do that. I think that's really interesting. Um, With the, the other thing that I wanted to quiz you about was something that I think we've spoken about before was the transformation photos. Oh yeah. And how the kind of, how the perspective has changed there, because I know you were a big advocate for the transformation photos, um, but that has also shifted in some way as well. Well, yeah, I guess. So I think from one perspective, like I lost a bunch of weight quite a while ago now, and it sort of got to the point where I, I don't really want to keep flogging that kind of, you know, here's how much weight I've lost for like six years. Like, okay, cool. I did that. That's fine. That was years ago now. So it kind of seems a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit old, it's a bit tired. But I had a lot of conversations with people about, and it was something, what was interesting to me is I never really considered that people would see it as a negative thing, unless that they, unless they were being jealous, or um, like not want, you know, you know, when people say, oh, people just don't want other people to succeed. And, you know, like, I sort of almost thought that, like, why would you be, why would somebody else's success or whatever make you feel bad like I I would almost view that as a bad quality in somebody to feel bad about the fact that somebody else is doing something that they want to do and I still like the jury's a little bit out on it for me in in terms of I I don't think that we should 
I don't, and this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about actually as well, because we talk about like embracing our feelings. And I think that, that feelings and actions are two really different things. And I think that we, you know, we often can't help how we feel about certain situations, but I also wonder if we should be fighting against like some of those feelings if they don't serve us or if they if they make us feel negative about things that we shouldn't feel negative about. Um, and I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on that kind of from a psychological point of view. And I base it on like when growing up, like my mum always had this thing, like if you felt bad, if I felt bad or upset about something, she would just like completely dismiss it and be like, oh, it's fine. Well, you know, you should be grateful, you know, like all of the, all of the usual kind of stuff. And she would be like, well, I don't want to, I don't want you to focus on something that makes you feel sad. I want you to forget about it. So I've kind of always had had that kind of growing up in the back of my mind that that was a good thing. And as I've learned more and more about mental health and psychology, I might have learned that perhaps that's not such a great thing to just kind of try and dismiss feelings rather than to to kind of reflect on them. So I'm interested to, to discuss that with you as well. But from the transformation picture perspective, to actually answer your question, <laughs> I personally find them quite inspiring. I think it's pretty amazing that people can can change their appearance, can change their lifestyle. I think when we function in a space like Instagram, which is essentially based on a pictorial representation of something, it's a bit naive of us to say, well, a transformation picture is a minimalistic approach. Well, so is a picture of a meal. Like you haven't shown what the effort that's gone into cooking it, but like, it's a picture, it's Instagram. Like I'm not living a transformation picture. I'm not like waking up every morning and going, look at my transformation picture self. I'm just, it's just what's on Instagram. And that is a pictorial representation of, of things. And I've always, something that I found like is that there is a real split down the middle with people. Like sometimes, you know, people will genuinely find seeing other people's transformation pictures or their own transformation pictures inspiring. And when it comes to stuff like lifestyle, and I'm not saying that about myself, by the way, I'm not saying like, I've really inspired people with my transformation. That's not what I mean at all. But I think sometimes seeing that, like, because for me and for, for the way that I look at it is very, and it's very different to a lot of people in fitness. I never thought there was any chance that I would actually lose weight. I never thought there was any chance that I could ever like see my abs. Like this was such a ludicrous idea to me that to the point where I, I could have very nearly not bothered to change my behavior or try and change my lifestyle because I didn't think it was possible. So there is a little bit of me that, would quite like people who were in the position that I was in before to know that if they do want to make changes, like if I, oh my God, if I can do that, legit anybody can do it. Like I, when I went to, you know, Super Size Me, the film about McDonald's. Yeah. I went out for a Chinese takeaway, not went out, I was, had a Chinese takeaway with friends in the evening and I was meant to be going to the cinema to watch Super Size Me. And I was walking from the Chinese meal to the cinema. And I thought, do you know what? I'm gonna be watching this film about McDonald's and then I'm gonna really crave McDonald's while I'm in this film. So I'm gonna get a McDonald's and take it in with me so that I can eat it while watching this film about how bad McDonald's is, right? That was kind of the level of lack of interest that I had in healthy lifestyle, you know, healthy eating, nutrition and all of that kind of stuff. Like, so for me, whenever I had seen things like transformation pictures and stuff before, I had just always assumed that they were done by people who were different to me, that lifestyle change was done by people who were different to me and that people like me could not do that. So there have always been like quite good intentions behind demonstrating that that, that is possible to people. But I do also recognize that the way that we present that and the way that we talk about it is absolutely paramount. And I think that for anyone who's listening who might, you know, not get the nuance and that will not already know that, but I suspect your audience probably already will. It's kind of just the idea that actually, and this is something that I did get wrong to start with, is that it's very easy to be very negative about your, your former self. Your former self isn't your former self. Your former self is you. That's who you were at that time. That's the journey that you were on. And that's, you're still the same person. 
but it was so easy to look back and go, oh, look how awful I looked. I can't believe I looked like that, you know? And actually, if you're looking at that picture as somebody who identifies more with that before picture, you're going to go, well, what are you saying about me? You're saying that I'm awful. You're saying I should be ashamed of myself. And oh my gosh, like when somebody explained that to me for the first time, I could have cried because I was like, oh no, I've, I have got this completely wrong. I have, you know, by my own, you know, misunderstanding and almost, it was almost, it was embarrassment in a way. Like I, I was a bit embarrassed that I had lived a way that I didn't really want to live. Um, and I felt I needed to defend it and I needed to justify it. And in doing so, I made other people feel bad about it, which was not, you know, which would never have been my intention at all. But again, that experience was hugely valuable because being able to understand that I'm also able to make people feel bad about themselves means that I need to really think hard about how I'm behaving in that sort of public situation and, and how I'm making people feel or how I'm encouraging people to feel. And, and a lot of people say things like, well, how people feel when they see what I say is not my responsibility. And I don't really agree with that. I think that, you know, there's a certain level of responsibility that you have and beyond that, I think that you can't control it to the, you know, to, to, a, to a really high degree. There will always be misunderstanding, but you can also do your best to make sure that that doesn't happen and to deliver a nuanced message that, that does its best not to make people feel bad about things. And that's why, you know, that's why I, I wouldn't say that I would not post a transformation picture, um, but I would say that if I did at the moment, I would make very sure that I would that the caption would be the right caption, if that makes sense. You can uh, you can reduce the the harm by the accurate caption. Well, yeah, I I think so, and I think that actually, like, yeah, I think that that if you're careful about how you deliver your message, then you know that then the message is more likely to be understood but if you're not careful about it and you just throw things out there without considering it um and this is the thing like i don't i don't necessarily ever really want to change people's minds about stuff like that i get people post transformation pictures i'm happy for them to i love seeing transformation pictures i actually really enjoy it um but i also recognize the difficulty behind it as well and I don't want people to change what they do. And I wouldn't preach to people about how they do it. But what I'd love for people to do is to listen to the other side of the argument and understand what other people's issues is rather than what other people's issues are, sorry, rather than just dismiss them because they don't fit in with your current point of view. It's, it's interesting you say that because when I, I posted about this a while ago and, you know, my stance on it is kind of the, I, like, I guess I see all of the harm in them because they're the, the people that I work with and I'm aware that I probably see a disproportionate amount of, of those people. But when I kind of put it out to my own audience about this, it was very 50-50 about people just enjoying it, seeing it as kind of something to aspire to or inspiration or whatever. And I can appreciate that while seeing the, the kind of harm. So again, there's always nuance. And this is why I love speaking to you about these things because there's a flip side and it feels yeah. like you've been on both sides well, yeah and also what was because I did this I did a similar thing where I put this this question out on Instagram and it was like 50 50 of people saying no I don't like it it's, you know and then or, or people saying I find it really inspirational but then there was also this cohort of people that were just like I just find it really boring I don't care and I was like, that's actually also quite a reasonable point as well. It's so interesting because one of the, one of the I did an interview um, probably a couple of months ago now with someone who struggles with anorexia and has uh, is like in the recovery process from anorexia. And it's so interesting because we kind of touched on the topic of like attaching value or attaching moral value of some kind to appearance, right? And judging by the responses from, from your end, there's one group who are like that's wrong there's another group who are like that's great and what the person who i interviewed with with anorexia said is she doesn't want to she said when she like is in recovery she doesn't want to turn around one day and start looking in the mirror and thinking i'm wonderful i look great my body is fantastic 
And at the moment, or like during her rough period, she was like, I hate my body. She was like, I don't even want to do part of the conversation. It shouldn't mean anything to me. And I think maybe that's where the people are like, yeah, that's boring. Or or, like, that's the kind of camp that they're in. It's like, it's irrelevant. It's not good or bad. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that that's sort of something that we probably all want to aim for really is, is, is sort of being fairly neutral about the changes. And, and, and I think that's, what's always been a big challenge is that like, even when, you know, even when my goals were very much health based, it's hard to get away from those aesthetic ideas and ideals, especially I think if, if you're a person like I was who grew up, um, kind of wanting to be in shape I guess was that was you know or or just not in the shape that they were in the idea that you can then do that and then doing it was like super exciting so then it's then you then end up in this situation where you you can develop an an unhealthy focus with with the 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 look side of things rather than with those things those other things that we were talking about like feeling better feeling more energetic being able to do more physical activity improved health markers and, and i think that's the that's kind of the line as well when, when i when i would work with people is like if they have an aesthetic goal or a weight goal or whatever it might look like the kind of line for me is if that is so big for you or that's such a big focus that it's taking over other areas or it's getting in the way of you yeah. focusing on other areas of your life then that is a problem regardless of how much you enjoy it if you like can't socialize at family occasions because you're worried about you know putting on half a kilo overnight or you know too many carbs in the dinner or whatever that might look like i think that's where it becomes a problem right it's it's the i guess the line is is this focus on this thing impacting your ability to live your life yeah i i agree i think it's it's something that's very, very hard to be objective about when you're in the middle of it, because then, and I think this is another big problem in sort of health and fitness is that sort of echo chamber mentality of thinking that what you're doing is healthy because a lot of other people are doing it. And then when people say to you, I don't think that what you're doing is healthy, and you assume that that's because they're not supportive of your goal or because they're jealous or they're that word that we use haters quote unquote <laughs> um, and it can be really it can be really challenging and actually like when you engage in in a, a big sort of lifestyle change aspects of your lifestyle will change and so there will be certain situations where people will be slightly less compatible with you because what you what they might have enjoyed about you doesn't necessarily exist anymore and it's very very difficult to find that balance between you know this is positive change for me and if that and if that no longer is you know it's a bit like someone who stops drinking because they've got a problem with alcohol and there will be people who don't find them fun anymore because they're sober all the time and that's not a positive, that doesn't mean that you should like that you should then drink to be with those people. Um, but it's finding the difference between the, the people who are worried about you because you, you know, they might think you might be losing too much weight or that you're avoiding social occasions because you, you know, you can't enjoy them, you can't relax and all of those sorts of things. Um, and just thinking that they're not being supportive of your goals. And, and that I think is something that pe- a lot of people struggle with. Um, because it's hard, it's hard, really hard to be objective. Yeah. Um, particularly- I, I think it's, it's arguably one of the hardest things to get past is someone's shift in identity. Yeah. Like, let's say, for example, someone with a, a, an eating issue finds keto and like all the keto support groups in this big echo chamber and they, everyone loves them in keto. Yeah. And the next thing, um, you know, that's maybe perpetuating the issue or that's exacerbating the issue. Yeah. How do you remove your identity from keto? It's it's like, it's really, really difficult. I actually, it's interesting because I, I uh, talked to somebody in work about this recently. I don't know if you've watched the Flat Earth documentary on Netflix. I've heard about it, yeah. But it's a similar situation. It's like someone is so ingrained in their beliefs and gets yeah. so much more. They get the community, they get the support, they get the validation that it's almost impossible to change your belief because that would mean losing so much more. And it's kind of similar with lifestyle change too. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. I want to also, I know we're, we're kind of short on time, but one of the reasons I was excited to have you on is to talk to you about 
the kind of medical and GP side of mental health as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it super interesting because we spoke recently about um, a PT who was um, kind of, I guess, was targeted by a client of theirs and the, the client had criticized them for not being trauma-informed and not, you know, being qualified to work with someone with trauma and they were you know quite upset the PT was also quite upset and we spoke a lot about that and I feel kind of similarly empathetic towards GPs sometimes because sometimes they are on the end of I guess criticism um for you know GP the GP gave me medication in my head I think sometimes well you know the GP is not trained in, in therapy while you know it'd be great if they could recommend therapy but that's the area that they're kind of qualified in so what what i wanted to speak to you about was kind of the GP's role in supporting people with mental health because there are some like in any um profession that maybe won't have as much insight into mental health as maybe you would and um, because we've spoken about this and i understand that you like do your own reading about this stuff so in terms of what people should expect maybe from a GP what is your role when somebody comes in and is struggling with with something so I think that to put it into context I think the biggest challenge with GPs and mental health is always going to be the appointment time and although this has changed in some places and in some practices and it's different in every practice to be honest generally speaking a GP has a 10 minute appointment so that's always the biggest challenge so when you know, when somebody rings me up about mental health or comes to see me about mental health, I know there's almost no chance that that is going to fit into that time slot, right? Because, you know, how do you even open the conversation and wrap it up in 10 minutes? It's it's really hard to do. So, and again, I think it also depends on capacity, but I have a bit of a, I have a few rules of thumb that I employ to try and make it a little bit easier on myself and on the patients. And one of them is that I don't try and solve all the problems within that first 10 minutes. I usually use that first encounter to do a bit of information gathering, a bit of a risk assessment, a bit of understanding about what's going on, recommend a few, usually speaking, and I don't want to give away all my tricks of the trade either, but generally speaking, recommend a few straightforward and simple things in the first instance, and then do a quick follow-up in in a matter of a few weeks to kind of see how things have panned out, decide what to do from there. Um, I generally speaking, um, I wouldn't say I don't prescribe like straight away, but I think that it's difficult. Some, it's, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's not to establish enough information to figure out whether somebody necessarily needs to be on medication. And that's again, just to clarify, I'm not saying it's wrong if people do that. Um, I just think that there are a lot of approaches to managing people's mental health. Therapy is, is huge, obviously as well. Um, and so is listening. And I think that what's really what's really difficult as a GP, if you if you consider depression as one mental health condition, somebody can have a 10 minute consultation with me and can present as depressed simply because they've had a bad day or a bad week. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have clinical depression. And to diagnose somebody with a long-term medical condition based on that very limited amount of information or start them on a medication that you might want them to be on for six months to a year at least um, is sometimes more than appropriate, you know? So I kind of think that taking a bit of, I think time is a useful diagnostic tool and is something that we often use in general practice um, in a lot of conditions, not, not just mental health. Um, But essentially, what's the role of the GP, I guess, to kind of coordinate the different aspects of that person's story and recovery. So I think listening is a huge part of that listening and and kind of almost being a somewhat of an advocate for that person, whether it's regard to issues that they may have at work or related to, you know, often a a very common theme will be things like a relationship breakdown or something like that, listening to their story. I think that what's very difficult for most people is that a lot of people will talk to friends or family and friends and family will always have an emotional agenda, not in a negative way, but they, you know, you worry about your friends and family. So they might react, they might panic a little bit if, you know, if if a friend is or or a family member is talking to them about, 
their mental health. So those conversations can be quite difficult. And so we think listening is hugely important and just managing the different aspects of it. So I guess if I often think of the three things that tend to be helpful with mental health conditions are self-help, like therapy related help um, and medications, and just basically trying to balance the need for those different things. Um, so when you're like you, you say like you have an initial and it's uh, you're you're dead right like it's it's never enough to try and analyze or assess what's going on for someone in 10 minutes but in that kind of follow-up situation is that when you might recommend or like at what point does you know therapy become a recommendation or medication or, or whatever i mean therapy is a pretty fast one i think because because i think generally speaking you would be hard pressed to find a person off the street who wouldn't benefit from talking therapies, right? Like actually most of us would, would benefit from talking therapies, or at least we would be unlikely to come, come to harm from them, right? So I'm pretty happy to recommend like therapy quite easily. Um, I think the difficulty in the NHS is, is kind of benefit versus need. Um, and what I guess we have to always be slightly wary of is is overloading the NHS therapeutic services with, you know, with the people who don't who aren't the ones most in need of them, if that makes any sense. So that's quite um, a tricky balance to find. Do you think um, that you think that's part of the, the reluctance of some people to, to recommend other services? Because I, I don't I don't want you to like I, I know you're not here to, to defend GPs by any means, but there is the the kind of criticism that um you know clients come and say, Oh, I went and I didn't get any support, or they told me to do X, Y, and Z, and that's the end of it. Is is there is there also the feeling that you know the public health service is overwhelmed often? And even if I did this thing, you might never get there. Well, so I don't, I mean, from speaking from personal experience, when I first started being a GP, there was like a 12 to 18 month waiting list for counselling on the NHS. So generally speaking, we were encouraged to refer people to private counselling services that to be fair, the private counselling services where I worked at the time were amazing because they were based on a donation sort of basis. So they wouldn't ask you to, to pay any more than you could comfortably afford. They were kind of charity based um so they, they functioned really well as an alternative um even for people with limited like means to access from a financial perspective but as time went on the service changed quite significantly and there was an umbrella service that was commissioned that basically involved triage from scratch so you would get in touch with them have a telephone triage appointment with a practitioner who would then basically either triage you to there, there were several sort of things that could happen ranging from guided self-help to a personal well-being practitioner to uh counseling to cbt to upscaling to the mental health team so and actually like because the triage was done from within the counseling service it was it was it then like was quite liberating from a gp perspective because it meant that we didn't necessarily need to decide whether counseling was appropriate or cbt was appropriate or whether they should just have self-help in that 10 minute con conversation because they would then have this kind of half an hour or 45 minute discussion with you know somebody in psychology who could actually help make that decision more appropriately and again, the, you know, the counselling sessions might be somewhat limited, so they might be given six sessions or 12 sessions or whatever. So it, that's sort of taken a lot of that pressure off. But I think what I have to accept is that it's, it's quite variable from region to region. So, so I, I don't see that side of things like where I am. I don't know that there is a reluctance from GPs to recommend those sorts of services because I don't, I don't feel that in my own practice there's no reason for me to be reluctant because I mean it's even it's a self-referral process anyway I don't even have to write a letter or like I don't have to do anything it's there's no there's no kind of cost to me in in any way like professionally financially from the resource perspective or anything like that so it's kind of you know I'm perhaps just in a really fortunate position from a regional perspective in in that way um 
Well, I think that's an ideal scenario, right? Being able to, if you don't have the time or if the appointment times are 10 minutes, mm. to have that service that people can kind of be assessed, I guess, in, a, in more in-depth yeah. is an optimal solution. I've actually read statistics on this that like, I think it's like, I think it was like 20 to 30% of GP consultations have something mental health related going on. Would that be accurate? I think, I mean, that's certainly in keeping with my experience and probably more so recently, I would say. And and I guess my experience is probably somewhat skewed as well, because I'm sort of, I think if people know that, you know, like if a receptionist knows that I'm the mental health lead, then they might be more likely to book a patient who's calling up about that problem with me, for example. Um, and I also do the annual kind of mental health reviews that we do for people who are on, you know, on sort of antipsychotic medications and things like that. So um, I then have more contact with those patients who might have usually or previously seen another GP. So it's difficult for me to say, but certainly that's the case. And it is, I guess, because it's it's the first port of call for everybody, no matter what the problem is. And I think that even if you don't have a mental health diagnosis, the mental health impact from having any sort of illness is significant anyway, like in terms of anxiety, in terms of how you feel about things um, that I think, you know, the mental health impact of disease is, is not to be underestimated either. So even if people aren't necessarily presenting with a mental health problem, like mental health is huge when dealing with other things like people with a new diagnosis of cancer or people with a new diagnosis of a chronic illness or people with chronic pain, like there's these huge mental health components to all of these other things as well. And that's, you know, like when people are under the care of a specialist, they may be, you know, that specialist may well be managing the specialty related problem, but they won't necessarily be, you know, involved in, in the mental health aspect of it as much as the GP might. And again, I don't want to be naive and say like, we sort out all the mental health problems and the specialists don't have to worry about it. Of course they do as well. And I think they're very good at managing that as well. But yeah. from what, kind of from what I see if you go and see a specialist who you've never met before about this problem but you know your GP because you've seen them like 10 or 20 times and they know your family and all of those sorts of things you might feel more comfortable addressing those other issues with them than you would be necessarily with you know with with a specialist in a in a clinic um, who you know you're there to see about a specific problem. Given that so many of those physical ailments also tie over to the mental health front and given the percentages of people who might turn up with mental health issues is there enough like in terms of the basic gp training without any extras or without like specific um psychiatry um placements or whatever that might look like is there enough training there considering those i guess the percentages that, that we just spoke about um I think there is like speaking as somebody who runs, you know, part of the training program, I think there's quite, there's a, there's a very reasonable amount, I think of mental health training because I think actually like, you know, it's, you don't need to know that much. Like it's not about the knowledge. It's about the understanding. I think in a lot of situations, it's about, it's about communication skills probably more than it is about anything else. It's about understanding you know, cues, it's about understanding when to explore, when people are struggling, it's about understanding risk. Um, I mean, I think like you could probably argue that nothing is, we don't get enough training on anything in general practice training because essentially, we, you know, we, we're supposed to to be kind of this, this kind of jack of all trades, I guess. Um, but I do, you know, I think, I think we, we are taught enough um, but again, I I don't know if it's like I, I sometimes just think because I, like I feel again, I feel really well supported by my secondary care colleagues in mental health. Like I think I know that if I don't know a medication to use, I can ring up a consultant and get some advice from them. I know that if I've got a patient who I'm worried about from a risk perspective, I can ring the urgent mental health line and speak to somebody within 10 minutes and we can talk through the situation. And it, and I know that if I say to them, I just don't feel comfortable managing this, 
they will say to me, I will give this patient a ring and I will speak to them and I'll come back to you. You know, like I feel incredibly well supported. And I think that that is, that's quite liberating in itself because it means that you can, you know, you don't have to be scared. I think a lot of people like might be scared of mental health problems if they're not experienced in discussing them. Mm. Um, or sometimes I think generally speaking, if we don't feel supported by, um, you know, by the people who know more than us, then sometimes these things can be scary to talk about. They can be scary to deal with, but um, I, th I think I think we're trained okay. I'd like to think so anyway. Is there anything that you'd kind of change in terms of how medical professionals interact with mental health? There's a smirk on your face. <laughs> it's, it's such a good question, because actually it's something that I don't know. I mean, I think about it all the time and haven't thought about it enough at the, you know, at the same time. I guess, like, I would just like... Um, I guess it's uniformity of access, I think, would be nice from the point of view that you always just hear people say, oh, um, I spoke to such and such person and they didn't do anything. And, and actually it's really hard because people's objective experiences or people's subjective experiences of a situation, especially when they're suffering can be very different to what's intended by that situation. And I think it's really difficult. Like they are hard situations to communicate in. But I also think that certainly in certain regions, in certain areas, the services are, are kind of allocated very differently and there's a very different level of demand on those services. Like, so for example, you know, mental health services in London, like the type of different specialists that are involved in, you know, and who you would call for different kinds of problems is very different to what it might be in this sort of suburban village area that I might work in. Um, but at the same time, because those services might be more overloaded than the services that I'm talking about, it still might be harder to get people what they need. Um, so it's really, it's really, really difficult because I think there's a lot of regional variation. And I think that that's, that's what I think is, is, is very challenging when we hear about things like mental health services. And I think that what's really tough at the moment is that there's a huge amount of pressure on the public to talk about things and to ask for help and all of that kind of stuff. But then what happens when they do? And I, I think that sometimes people's experiences of asking for help doesn't always end so positively for them. And I think that's probably what I would, you know, what I would like to change is, is having people have access, not just to talk to people necessarily, but also to, you know, to have the kind of support that they need on an ongoing basis. But yeah. then- I think, you're, I think you're really right there. I think consistency is super important because we spoke just before this about how there's such variation in like, you know, there's always going to be bad therapists out there. There's always going to be bad medical professionals, bad personal trainers, you know, there's always going to be that. It would be so great if not only were, if the practitioners were all consistent, but also the services that are available to people. And I think it's really sad to see if you look at the mental health statistics and like socioeconomic stuff and even location alone, like geographical location, even accounting for, you know, socioeconomic age, all of those different factors, like your geographical location can impact the services that you get. So I think that's a really nice message to, to wrap up on. Mike, it has been a pleasure. I'm aware we're kind of running out of time. Um, I think I got to everything that I wanted to, um, but it's great to hear a perspective from somebody who has, I guess, a foot in, in both camps and is able to, to see the nuance. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on and speaking to me. Oh, likewise. Thanks very much for having me anytime. <laughs>